and we're doing it with a bang. I know it's been a few weeks and I missed you. So we're serving up some extra content to make that wait so much sweeter. It's a special two-part post-election podcast. Part one is a broadcast of Navigator's post-election analysis, Beyond the Vote. If you didn't catch it live on the Toronto Star website, my Navigator colleagues conducted a series of focus groups across the country to get beyond the numbers and look inside the minds of voters to see why they chose the Liberal government what they're looking for, and what it will mean for you. The seat count may not have changed, but that doesn't mean voters' expectations have stayed the same. We'll also be dropping a new episode with our panel of campaign insiders fresh from Party HQ. This is Political Traction. Canada's 44th general election is over, and the shape of the next parliament is clear. Justin Trudeau's Liberals have been returned to Ottawa with another minority government. We know how Canadians voted. Now we are going to find out why. How we're gonna move forward through this pandemic to end it, how we're gonna build back better. We didn't see the government adapt to the changing crisis. I am driving the bus to make sure we get this country back on track. The cause of inaction is forest fires and flooding and heat waves that mean Canadians lose their lives. We are saying that those are legitimate laws that apply on Quebec territory. The biggest thing that could make a difference in the cost of living for people is a change in the culture in Ottawa. Welcome to Election 44, Beyond the Vote. I'm Tasha Carradine. Thank you so much for joining us. Over the next hour, we are going to go beyond the numbers to take you inside the minds of the voters who put this government in office. We conducted post-election research with 10 groups of Liberal voters from Atlantic Canada, Quebec, Ontario, the Prairies, and British Columbia to get an accurate picture of why they chose this government and what they want from it. We also conducted social media listening throughout the campaign, which gave us even greater insight into what was really in the minds of voters. This is the eighth time that Navigator has conducted this type of post-election analysis that has proved accurate time and time again. So today we have a team of Navigator experts from across the country standing by We're also thrilled to be joined by Althea Raj, national political columnist with the Toronto Star, who's covered all the campaigns in this election. We begin with Navigators Chairman, Jamie Watt. Jamie, all right, you've heard the results of brand new nationwide post-election polling and the focus groups. What have you learned? Well, Tasha, after hearing from voters from coast to coast to coast across Canada, we've got lots to share, thanks so much for making time to be with us, ladies and gentlemen. You know, since the writs were returned, this has been called the Seinfeld election so often as to be tiresome. Pundits and commentators have suggested that just because the seat count stayed roughly the same, 
nothing has changed. Boy, have they got it wrong. Sure, on the surface, Parliament might look the same, but voters have radically different expectations of it. And now we know if we can understand those expectations, we can likely predict how government will act and how those actions will impact your organization. So here are the top expectations we have, which we believe will drive the new government. First, voters now, and this is the really big news, voters now have a fundamentally different relationship with government. Over the pandemic, they felt taken care of by government. And as a consequence, they now see the solution to their affordability concerns not in a free, robust, and growing economy, but rather in solutions coming from government programs or government supports. Unexpectedly, they've come to appreciate the role of big government in a way they've shunned for many years. Second, voters want the burden of paying for these programs to be shared more fairly. Now, interestingly, more fairly to them is more likely to mean big business chipping in in a larger share than it is a punitive luxury or income tax imposed on people. Third, voters give the new government no credit for programs or initiatives passed. Rather, they expect it to use its experience to deliver new programs and to do so quickly. This is especially important given that the road ahead is not clear. Whether the response that will be needed is one that focuses on the healthcare impacts of COVID or the economic ones, this is a time voters believe when experience counts. And then there is climate. This was the election that saw climate change become a mainstream issue for all of the political parties. Liberals take climate change seriously and their voters recognize that, but not much more. Once again, Trudeau did not get credit for the hard fought carbon tax or other policies. So what would appease those voters? What would make them proud of their government's record on climate change? Well, they aren't really able to say. And therein lies the communications challenge for the government. It's also what makes one policy so attractive. And luckily it's one that's a major hit with voters and that's childcare. It's a policy that fits with the party's feminist agenda. It's got significant economic uh, potential. And most importantly, it'll make a real difference in the lives of millions of Canadian families. Canadian families who are counting on Trudeau to get this one done. After all, voters were well aware that the clock is ticking on Justin Trudeau's time in office. And one way or another, they hoped that this would get things moving quickly. So Tasha, a Seinfeld election, not a chance. Rather an election is fundamentally change-making as the pandemic itself. Thank you, Jamie. I love Seinfeld, but you know, there are a lot of changes to unpack here. So let's get to it, uh, Jamie and Althea. In our panel, um, the shift in the relationship with government is the big place we're going to start. If voters want a government that cares, how does that shape its policy agenda? Let's bring in Graham Fox to our conversation. 
from Ottawa. Graham is a managing partner at Navigator. Graham, what are the focus groups telling us about the change in voters' relationship with the state? Thank you, Tasha. Um, we are witnessing a major shift in voter mindset and expectations. Um, in a lot of ways, we spent this campaign debating issues that we've heard about in past campaigns, such as the cost of living, affordability, health care. But let's remember that the government of Canada has been more present and more relevant in the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians over the course of this pandemic, perhaps more so than at any other time in modern history. And so we heard from voters that they felt taken care of by government and that government was there for them precisely at the time that they needed it most. And the quote, this quote from a focus group participant in British Columbia, I think sums it up very well. As a single working mom, the liberals have changed my life. I feel a real loyalty to them. I feel like we've been cared for and I want him to keep, I want him to keep on track with working families. And so we see that sentiment, which came up right across our research. And therefore, based on that, I think we, we can expect the government of Canada to pursue a much more interventionist uh, policy track uh, than perhaps we're used to. Well, that quote would probably be music to Justin Trudeau's ears, Graham. Um, but Althea, I, I wanna ask you, politically, this is a minority parliament. Um, how do you think that this interventionist agenda is gonna play out here? Well, I think we need to remember that um, Justin Trudeau's platform was quite interventionist. I mean, he went uh, even so far as to suggest that he was going to ensure that everybody has a family doctor. Um, it's also a very interventionist uh, policy with regards to uh, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, the Greens, even the Conservatives offered an interventionist uh, platform. Uh, you know, they wanted the workers' benefit, for example, to be increased. So there's a lot of common ground between the opposition parties and the government in this minority parliament. Uh, there's a lot of work that they can do together on that agenda. And the other thing I'll say uh, briefly is that none of these leaders actually have a very strong uh, hand to play. Justin Trudeau cannot, in this minority parliament, basically threaten the opposition and say, hey, if you don't do what I want, we're going to have another election because nobody wants another election. The NDP doesn't want an election. They're basically broke um, and very still licking their wounds, I would say, from the fact that they spent $24 million to get one extra seat. The Québécois. Uh, also wants to work with the opposition parties. In fact, we heard Yves-François Blanchet, um, the first time I can actually recall, basically say he plans to give an olive branch to the opposition parties. He thinks everybody can work together. Um, if it wasn't for the English debate in the last election, the Bleu Québécois would probably have a lot fewer seats. So he's even extended an olive branch to the NDP, a party with whom he's had some testy relationships over the past um, <laughs> year over a, a particular question we don't need to get into. But, yeah. you know, their interpersonal uh, relationships are being put aside for the good of working together. I think the question mark is really what happens with the Conservative Party. Um, do they basically ignore Justin Trudeau and the government's mandate as they kind of deal with their own leadership struggles? Or does the Conservative Party decide to unite its uh, different factions in the hatred of Justin Trudeau and oppose the government every step of the way? Well, uh, it's nice to see that there'll be some consensus, at least among some people in Parliament. Um, but Jamie, I want to I want to ask you about another relationship here, uh, which is the government and business. Is there any room perhaps in this agenda for them to work on things together as well? well absolutely, Tasha. The first thing business has to understand is that the past is in prologue. And if the people are going to have a new relationship with their government and have new expectations of their government, so too does that mean there are opportunities for business to have a new relationship with government. You know, just because the 
public wants to be protected and wants this kind of intervention from the government, that doesn't mean that there aren't roles for business in delivering those services and providing those things that uh, people want so badly. We also heard things, though, and um, I'll open the floor to whoever wants to take this question uh, in the focus groups about things like capping cell phone bills and, uh, you know, lowering costs of credit card interest. I mean, how interventionist might this government be in the life of business as a result? I think we're going to well, see can... them act on that, frankly, Tasha. Um, mm. in the, and voters have given them permission uh, to think about it in those ways. I mean, let's go back to 2015 where we spent a lot of the campaign talking about grand themes and grand schemes to address them. And then fast forward six years, after 18 months of being isolated from loved ones and family, uh, worried about their jobs, uh, trying to balance their checkbooks, voters were uniquely concerned with micro policies this time around. And so I think that's why we heard more about telcos. I think we'll get into some childcare discussion later on in the, in the conversation. And so I think, I, I think government has license to go there. To Althea's point earlier, I think they have the parliament to help them along. And I think large corporations uh, need to adjust their own relationship with government to keep up with these times. Althea, did you want yeah. to weigh in on that as well? I, I'll just, uh, you know, um, recall for the the viewer that is watching this that actually Justin Trudeau had this in his 2019 platform, right? Reducing cell phone bills. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the criticism from the NDP over the last year was that they hadn't done enough on this file. Um, uh, credit card fees has long been a, uh, a bellywhack of the NDP introduced as private members bill. I'd be surprised that um, that gets completely squashed. Uh, but, you know, as has happened in the past two governments, they're often outside issues that come and kind of detract the liberal government from pursuing its interventionist agenda. We had Donald Trump, we had COVID. So, I mean, I think we're speaking, these are the things they want to accomplish. And I think we all believe that the liberal government wants to do these things, how far ahead they'll get in implementing their agenda. Yeah, I think what, uh, you know, Althea, you, that's a really good point that, uh, you know, uh, every government has to deal with the uh, files that are on their desk, uh, and often they get knocked off uh, what they want to do. I, I think, though, this time around, people really expect the Liberals to move those things al along. They expect the Prime Minister to use his experience to get stuff done. And, 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 and if I were uh, planning this new Liberal government, I would be really keeping my eye on the the amount of patience the, the electorate has for more delay because i i think it's low i think they're expecting uh them to actually uh move things forward well, just I think the other thing yeah, sorry ahead. we all want in go ahead. the other thing to keep in mind is that this is probably justin trudeau's last mandate and so Correct. he's also looking to build a legacy and a lot of the things that he cares passionately about are interventionist measures so there is an an added incentive for the government to get things done a confluence of things yeah, the expectations are high on, on industry and uh, as well, if you if you will, just like there are high expectations uh, from the electorate for the minority parliament to work together. I think there's a real appetite for the private sector and the government to work together. You know, we saw the, the desire for intervention, interventionist government across the West as well, which was somewhat surprising from, from these voters. The one little wobble, though, perhaps, was uh, on, on some of the supports uh, post-COVID. There were those that were uh, very nervous that perhaps uh, 
businesses were looking for, were having trouble looking for uh, employees. Look, there were some job shortages on the horizon. So that might be one little area that the government will have to pay attention as we kind of come to this, uh, come to the next stage of the pandemic. No, definitely. I want to actually, before we uh, we close off this segment, I wanted to address one other issue that did come up in the focus groups, non-economic, but interventionist. And, and it was quite clear on vaccine mandates, because we're not out of the woods yet. Um, uh, Graham, what did people have to say uh, about their openness to vaccine passports and mandates, such as Justin Trudeau had suggested during the election? Just go ahead and get it done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, across the board, full support uh, by people who chose uh, to, to vote for the Liberal Party in this election, um, enthusiastic support for meaningful government action on that front. Elvia, do you think there's going to be any um, opposition to that within the parliament? Do you think that uh, the Conservatives might, uh, and they weren't they weren't uh, as far, obviously, in favor of uh, vaccine policies and mandatory vaccination, clearly not, as the Liberals were. So how do you think that's going to play out? Yeah, I would say they were actually not in favor of vaccine mandates. I think in some ways they might temper um, their comments because vaccine mandates actually appear to be popular. Even in Ontario, for example, Doug Ford um, has embraced the concept to keep businesses alive. Um, I think that that is going to be an interesting discussion (laughs) that caucus members will have in about two weeks when they meet in the first caucus meeting, because that was one of the wedge issues that this election campaign was fought on. And clearly the Conservatives found themselves on the losing end of of that debate. Okay. Well, so we know interventionism is not going anywhere. Government programs uh, to implement things are not going to go anywhere. So now we're going to address who is going to pay for all of this. Um, to do that, I want to say thank you so much to Graham and bring now into our conversation André Pratt. He is a principal at Navigators Montreal office, a former senator as well. André, bonjour. Bonjour. Okay, so talk about les finances. We're going to talk finance. Favorite subject. Uh, what are the focus groups saying? about who should foot the bill for this big government agenda. Well, remember, Tasha, during the 2015 campaign when the Liberals decided that their fiscal plan would include two years of modest budget deficit. It was seen as a huge gamble because the idea of a balanced budget had been so profoundly engraved in Canadians' minds during the previous year. Well, all this is gone now. In our research, uh, very few voters, if any, mention deficits or the debt or, uh, for, as a reason for concern. And when we asked them about it, they just sort of shrugged and said, yeah, sure, our children will have to pay, but governments have no choice now. They need to take care of people. And so when we asked, well, how is government going to pay for all this? They didn't really have an answer, but one thing was clear in their minds. They believe that large businesses, not SMEs, but large businesses, should pay more taxes. They don't talk about Jack Mead Singh's ultra-rich people. They hope that government will go after big corporations. And for them, it's not a matter of paying for the programs. It's an issue of fairness. Hmm. And fairness is in in the definition of that, of course. Um, All right, let's get this started with uh, people who define fairness and tax a little differently, and that's the NDP. Um, Althea, I'd love your perspective on this because we know that the NDP was very much in favor of a wealth tax on those rich uh, that Jean-André identified. Uh, Justin Trudeau goes the opposite way and says, no, we're going to leave those folks alone. We're going to tax corporations instead. How do you think uh, he's going to be able to convince the NDP or can he find other allies to support that? Uh, I think the NDP is going to go along with 
the Liberal government's plan to tax uh, banks and insurance companies. Basically, uh, over a billion dollars, the banks would have to pay an extra 3% for um, uh, for any uh, the profits over a billion dollars. So that is a lot of money, according to the Liberals, costing $2.5 billion. I don't see the NDP opposing that move. The NDP had uh, proposed in the last election that we just had a super wealth tax, uh, wealth over $10 million, and also something that got a little less attention, which was just um, adding, uh, pay, making people who earn, I think it's about $230,000 a year, um, increasing their share of the, in the last bracket, uh, increasing their taxes. So that's something that the Liberals actually did in 2015. Would they be open to the idea of basically taxing wealthy Canadians again? Possibly. Jagmeet Singh has suggested that taxing the rich was going to be the cost for his support, but the NDP has never been really, how shall I say this, um, firm on the cost of its support. You know, it's kind of toyed with the idea of like, oh, proportional representation was going to be the cost for their support. And then, of course, that was not true. So um, I'm not sure that the Liberals can take the NDP's um, threats to the bank, uh, but they probably will get the NDP on side with their plan to tax the banks. Yeah, I think they wanted Pharmacare was their price one year too, um, but you're right. Uh, <laughs> speaking well, they're, of they're moving on Pharmacare, at least target. that's what they say, yeah. <laughs> well, and we can talk about that in a moment too, but I want to get to, you mentioned banks, and uh, Jamie, that's uh, the bank tax is something the Liberals did bring out. Um, it, uh, it would bring in revenue. It uh, would also have a lot of consequences potentially for banks and their customers. And I'm wondering how you think the Liberals are going to maybe package this to, to sell the tax, not necessarily to the NDP, but to the general public. How are they going to package this? Well, I, I think we can actually unpack or unpackage those those two parts. Uh, one, I don't think they're going to have to sell this to Canadians at all because Canadians uh, support this. Uh, they think it's a good idea. They think that the banks and insurance companies have done uh, particularly well during the pandemic and that they can pay a little bit more. And even if uh, the banks don't feel they can pay a little bit more, everybody thinks that they are in a better position to pay a little bit more than others are. Uh, I think they're going to go, though, one step further than that. And I think they're going to take the money and they're going to use it for something that helps deal with affordability. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that what they'll do is they'll roll up the money from that tax and put it towards something like uh, increasing uh, housing affordability or something like that. Because no matter how much people are feeling prices going up and whether lettuce costs more or costs more to fill up your car, the tsunami of affordability is, is uh, the cost of housing. And they really need something big to fix that. And I think it's going to come from that tax. Yeah, can I add to that? I think Absolutely. Jamie's totally right. I was, for some weird reason, I was going through the Liberals' data bank of ads from the last campaign. And actually in their ads, they make that link between asking the banks to pay more and the banks helping people uh, be able to buy their first home. And it, uh, from a logical standpoint, uh, to your point, Andre, you made earlier, you know, companies that profited during the pandemic, uh, the real estate market went bananas. Uh, banks were able to, I mean, they had huge demands for, for mortgages. People were buying homes, uh, second homes in some cases, and uh, arguably profited well, did well. So is that going to be the litmus test, do you think, that, you know, companies that, that did well should be wary, perhaps, of what could be coming down in terms of taxation? 
Yes, and uh, again, the important thing here is that for most Canadians, it's a matter of fairness. So it's a matter of principle, really. It's more than simply paying the bills, right? And uh, we found in other research that we did that this idea that uh, Canada is an unequal society and get, that governments need to deal with that is very, very profound, profoundly uh, implemented in people. People really believe that the society is unfair and that governments need to do something, starting with large corporations. What did you say? Oh, yes, go ahead. I was just going to add to, to Andre's point, which is, I think, bang on. Some research that we did at the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation demonstrates that Canadians care deeply and are concerned about inequalities, climate change, inequities. And as we dig a little deeper, as we dug a little deeper, we saw that essentially people are saying, we want you to get tougher on business. We want governments to put in rules, regulations, taxes, and laws to force businesses to do more to tackle these societal challenges. So that's certainly an appetite amongst Canadians at the moment. And I'm sure all of the politicians that went door to door could feel it when they were speaking to their potential constituents. Yeah, Jamie, can, can I just add on that? Yeah. I, I think we need to differentiate between the classes of business because the public mm -hmm. seems to really want big business to pay. And you know they wanna attack Amazon and the web giants, but they are very aware of helping small business. At least that's the feedback I received traveling across the country. And that was in the focus groups as well. Absolutely. That was the, one of the key comments, <clears throat> excuse me, difference between the SMEs, as, as you said, Andre, small, medium, otherwise enterprises and big companies. Uh, but I want to tack, uh, tackle pandemic spending as well, because people had a lot to say about that. And Jamie, um, what was the biggest takeaway you had in the focus groups about how people felt the government was spending on pandemic relief measures? Well, there was tremendous support for the spending on pandemic relief measures. There's a little bit of concern that it's keeping people from returning to the to the labor market. But overall, there's continuing support for it. And there's not a whit of concern about how to pay for it. Yeah, the debt and deficit was, uh, you already said, not really, really top of mind. Um, not top of mind. It was nowhere as well. <laughs> Yeah, and that is something that's a, bit, a big sea change from previous governments. And you think of previous liberal governments too, uh, back in the days of, uh, you know, Martin and Chrétien, that was the deficit was a big issue. So knowing that, I guess politically, um, are we going to be hearing any rhetoric around the debt? Is any party going to be able to make headway with that, do you think? Not now, not, not currently. Uh, eventually, if we come to this situation where, uh, Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien were faced with, that is, with international organizations sort of forcing us to deal with the issue. Canadians have no appetite for this. Uh, and, I mean, in their private lives, the situation is the same, right? I mean, people have to borrow if they want to buy a house. They have to borrow a lot, and they just hope that those interest rates will remain low. And uh, I guess they hope the same thing for their government, that interest rates stay low. You made the point also earlier, I think Althea, about, um, or maybe it was Andre, about how people are not, uh, there's a concern about maybe these supports will prevent people from coming back to work. Um, was there concern expressed in the focus groups about labor shortages and what the government might do around that? I'm assuming so, that's not for me. I think it was actually Jamie who said it. <laughs> I, was, I see everyone on my screen. So Jamie, I think you have been, I made the point actually. 
Uh, yeah, there there is some concern about uh, whether or not people will return to the uh, to the labor market, but that that's a concern amongst employers, uh, amongst the public as a whole. They're quite satisfied, as I said, about the support that was given uh, during the pandemic, and, and and they're keen to see that continue as long as as long as is necessary. There's no rush for it to end. All right. Okay, so we know that people want the government to care and they want business to pay. Uh, so now the question we're going to tackle is how fast do they want the government to act? So on that, I want to bring in Brian Gallant, uh, former Premier of New Brunswick and CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation. Brian, you know a thing or two about government acting and demands. Um, what are the focus groups telling us about the, the pace that they want Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government to go? Fast. Tasha, they want everything quickly. Yesterday. They want action. They want concrete things to appear and, and to be happening with the government. It's really fascinating. Our research, as has been mentioned, demonstrates everybody is really interested in an interventionist government at the moment, but they also want it to be done quickly. Uh, they want to see things that are going to impact their everyday lives and the lives of their families. What is also fascinating is people are saying that they think that Trudeau cares about the big social issues and societal challenges that may be concerning them, but they at the same time can't really grasp, they struggle to grasp what he has done and what the Liberal government has done to try to tackle these issues. So this, I think, paints a picture in which with the voters' appetite for swift action, that they wanna see real concrete action, that the Liberals, the prime minister himself, and I would frankly argue all political parties are going to be thinking of the way in which they can deliver and deliver quickly for Canadians as they prepare for the new parliament to resume. Okay. Well, they, uh, this parliament, you know, um, Justin Trudeau has said that this parliament will be longer than the last one. Um, but realistically, Althea, minority governments do have a shorter shelf life. And I'm wondering how much runway you give this government to, you know, get her done on all these things. Uh, I think that depends on a few things. Does Justin Trudeau want to stick around for a fourth election? I think the answer most people believe is no. Mm -hmm. I think the answer also depends on uh, what happens with the Conservative Party. I believe the Liberals, when they say that they have viewed this as a mandate to keep going, I think they could keep going if they wanted four years. I mean, Jagmeet Singh in the last parliament said he was willing to give the NDP support to the Liberals for a full mandate. I see no reason why the NDP would not say the same thing again. Uh, that caveat, add a little asterisk there. You know, if there's another uh, scandal, like a, a Gomery sponsorship level scandal or a SNC leveling scandal, maybe the NDP will decide to withhold their support. But in terms of policy agendas, I mean, the parties are are basically running on the same platform. I mean, you look at childcare, the NDP in its own platform basically said, we are not just basically said, we are adopting the Liberals' childcare plan. We're not even spending a dollar more. Like our costing is the Liberals' costing. There are so many issues on which they can work together. I do not see why they would bring down the government unless there is these um, outside issues that make it too politically toxic. And I think that the prime minister will want to have as much time as he can to build that legacy if he intends to, you know, take his long walk in the snow in two plus years. I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, we're having an election campaign in 18 months, as Aaron O'Toole said uh, on election night. Well, if he does take that, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think Althea has touched on a really important point, which is the level of patience that voters have for shenanigans, drama, scandals, 
Uh, to Brian's point, the main message that we heard throughout the research was get back to work, but it was enough with the drama, get back to work. And so I think that's that will condition how long uh, this minority parliament lasts, where I think the government really has to show meaningful progress on tangible policy issues and no trouble at all on the scandal front. Um, if, there, if, if those things start to creep up, I think the level of appetite uh, from the opposition parties uh, to go to the polls again may, may turn on a dime, frankly. Yeah, and there was comment in the focus groups um, about why people chose Justin Trudeau, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't the love affair of 2015. It was some people going out as far as to say it was the devil you know, uh, or the best of what there was. So it would seem, Jamie, they're going to give him a much shorter rope this time to actually accomplish what they're looking for. It's the sense of impatience, I think. I, I, I think there is that sense of impatience, and I think the government's going to have to pick something to get done. You know, the one that we're suggesting is childcare. We think that, uh, you know, childcare is a very, very powerful issue for this government. Uh, it's uh, important uh, to women. It's important to families. Uh, it's important to the economy. And it's jurisdictionally challenging, of course, but I think that's something that the, if the prime minister turned his mind to, people would be quite pleased. Yeah, and yep. Tasha, I think the, 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 the thing that people told us about Justin Trudeau is that what they want from him is that he delivers on his commitments. There's a sense that he made huge commitments starting in 2015 and that he didn't deliver. So they're willing to give him another chance, but he needs to, to deliver. And as, as Brian said, he needs to do it fast. If not, people will turn against his government. Yeah, and Brian, there was a sense of tangibility too. People seem to want things they can touch, see, feel. Wait, what what policies, apart from childcare, which is an obvious one, and we're going to talk about that a little more in detail in the show. What what do you see that people would uh, would be satisfied with in terms of policies that could be very personal here? You're you're absolutely right, Tasha. What's interesting again is yeah, they they think Justin Trudeau cares about the big issues. They want action on the big issues, but they also want that action to have an impact on their daily lives, on their families, a positive impact, of course. So this is a bit trickier, right? You can see the government put in some policies that, yes, would help in a grandiose way societal challenges, such as, let's say, climate change. But if they're putting in policies that aren't actually improving the lives of Canadians, that's still going to have them in the realm of people saying, well, what action did they take? It's not concrete because they're not feeling it in their day to day. So yes, childcare is a great example because that is helping address inequality, inequity. And at the same time, so many Canadian families will see the impact on their daily lives. When it comes to climate change, one example that we certainly heard was electric cars. If that could become more accessible, more affordable for more Canadians, that could, in a way, yes, address a societal challenge, which is climate change. But at the same time, it could also maybe help inequality and equity and allow more people to access that type of vehicle. So it's going to be a tricky, tricky uh, time for the prime minister and his government. Tackling societal challenges is tough in the best of times, but when you need to do it in a way that all Canadian families feel that their lives, everyday lives, are improving, makes it all that much tougher. Do we know what they don't want him to do? I know the focus groups discuss that too, um, what they would not want to see this government actually 
you know, get done or uh, or attempt apart from paying down the debt and deficit, which was something people didn't uh, didn't see as a priority. What did they say, uh, Jamie, that they didn't want the government to act on? Well, uh, they don't want the government to get to get distracted by things that don't drive the, those things that affect their everyday life. So they've got limited patience for, uh, for example, for foreign affairs. They've got limited patience for things that aren't going to pay that are going to pay off for the long term. They've got limited patience for grand projects. Like this is not a time for, you know, introducing GST or, you know, macroeconomic restructuring or or things that aren't going to pay off for some time to come. This is, as uh, my colleagues have each said in their own way, time for delivering results and delivering them fast. Okay. So things, I'm thinking big, big picture items we mentioned earlier, pharmacare might be something, uh, guaranteed annual income. Uh, that's been talked about not by the Liberals in this election, but certainly by the NDP. Uh, I mean, I think every, we should hear from other people because everybody will have different views. I, I think pharmacare is on the horizon. Uh, I just think they're going to do they're going to finish childcare first. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they, that they continue to push through pharmacare. As you know, that's it's well started. Uh, so I think that you could expect that it would be pushed all the way through. Okay. Althea, you had mentioned it earlier as well as something you had heard about um, in sort of political political circles. Are there any, is there any other projects out there, the big picture items that you think maybe they won't touch or they will touch because they're congruent with this, you know, the personal is political kind of agenda? Yeah, I would say guaranteed income is, which was pushed by the Greens. Definitely that's not happening. Pharmacare, which um, the Liberals own Pharmacare panel uh, suggested should be a universal program. Um, Bill Morneau, when he was finance minister, preferred to have a kind of patchwork approach, like let people who have private health care um, with their employer and have a pharmacare plan through their employer, um, let them have that and just have the federal government uh, cover people who are not currently covered. That seems to be the way the the liberals want to go. Um, but they're still not they're they're still at the baby steps, I would say, on that plan. I think other things that you were going to see them continue to work on and hopefully accomplish is really broadband across the country. I mean, it's, it's COVID has made that stark that you need to, to have like regional development in rural areas. You need to have broadband. Everybody should have access um, to the Internet. Um, I think we're also going to see uh, money for long-term care and mental health. These are things that the Liberals have said that they want to focus on. I agree on the climate change. I think um, electric vehicles are something that they're going to invest heavily in because it shows people how their own behavior can change if the government um, helps them do that. I think climate ad adaptability is going to be something that we're going to see when it comes to infrastructure. I mean, you look at the forest fires in British Columbia, and that's just a perfect example of things that uh, the federal government has been talking about, the liberal government has been talking about, that they need to continue to deliver on. Yeah. The word stability came up often. People are looking for stability in their own households and in their own daily, daily lives. So for Jamie's comments, foreign affairs and those things, less important. But these concrete examples that we've talked about around this table, pharmacare, et cetera, these are things that bring stability in, in, in people's lives. And it shows what they saw as the benefits of some of the COVID responses that the federal government uh, used uh, post-COVID. Yeah, it definitely they definitely do touch people personally. The climate change piece, and I thank you for raising that, Althea, because that is our next area of, of focus here. We really want to take a deep dive into that because it was brought up by all the focus groups universally, uh, very heavily in Quebec, where 
childcare was an issue, yes, but they have they already have a childcare plan, so it wasn't as much of a focus. But climate definitely, and NBC too, we saw a great deal of that, and it's this kind of anxiety that was a big driver of votes. Um, and another issue mixed in with that, of course, was energy companies and projects like pipelines. So, Jason, I want to bring you in here, uh, Jason Hatcher, managing principal in Navigators Calgary office, specifically on that. Um, you work in the epicenter of the energy sector. Uh, what did you hear? What struck you from the focus groups with regards to climate change policy the Liberals may go with? Well, you know, Tasha, we saw a real paradox. On one hand, voters want action on climate change and they want it now. But they, they don't know what that is. They want meaningful steps and they want to be a part of it. Uh, but but they don't know what and they want to know how they can help. Voters, voters also see climate change as a catch-all solution for a number of issues, including job creation, affordability, and wealth inequality. Honestly, Mr. Trudeau has created that expectations, and voters expect him to deliver in a meaningful way. You know, as Jamie said, the, the prime minister doesn't really get credit for the hard-fought carbon tax, but he also isn't getting blamed for any pricing increases associated with that tax. So how, how are government's going to meet, how's the government going to meet these expectations? Well, honestly, the voters weren't able to say. But one thing did stand out was support for innovation and for industry and private the private sector to work collectively with government. A quote from Vancouver really summed it up. Uh, a woman said, I think there are a lot of companies in Canada, energy companies, tech companies that could help. So I think you should promote those companies a lot more and stop pleasing everybody on all sides. You just have to put your foot down. I thought that was really striking, but it also yeah. points to something tangible that could be done, but it's going to require cooperation with industries. Okay, I find that very ironic, actually, um, because the focus on innovation was something that the the conservatives were really highlighting their plan um, and the notion of things like carbon capture and involving industry in the solution. And, uh, you know, Althea, people didn't buy that, obviously. The, the conservatives are not forming the next government. So, um, do you think that the, the Liberals should basically steal their, their thunder on this? Is that what their, their voters seem to be telling us? Well, innovation has been uh, part of the Liberals' plan. I think the reason voters rejected the Conservatives' climate plan um, was basically around the carbon pricing plan, which, I mean, frankly, is a terrible, very costly, cumbersome program to implement. This is the... Uh, low carbon savings account, like the more you fill up your uh, gasoline SUV at the pumps, you would get money into a bank account. And this bank account, you could use it. I mean, it's a, a points account, whatever you want to call it, a savings account. You could use it to buy a bicycle, for example. And even conservatives thought, well, this is kind of a silly idea. Like the government is going to tell me what I can use this money Four. Um, and the Conservatives seem to have abandoned their plan midway in the election campaign. Like we had an editorial board with Aaron O'Toole at the Star, and he, we asked him, you know, how quickly would you implement this program? And what about the provinces that want to stay with Justin Trudeau's carbon tax? And he said, and I think this caused them some problems. Well, you know, uh, if the provinces want to keep the carbon price as it is, they can do that. Or if they want to keep our plan, they can take our plan. And I think that spoke to, well, frankly, trust yeah. uh, around Aaron O'Toole's plan. As I don't really think it was a rejection of like the innovation part of his climate plan. I think it was more like your plan actually compared to the Liberals' plan is worse. The Liberals' plan is actually more, you know, like small C conservative. Um, and uh, now you're kind of abandoning your plan after telling us that you were going to scrap the carbon tax during the leadership race. Like it all spoke to the idea of Aaron O'Toole as a flip flopper. I think that's where the problem was on the conservatives' climate plan. It wasn't about the innovation stuff. 
All right. Well, it seems though that from the research we saw with the focus groups, they didn't understand the liberals' plan either. Um, you know, I don't. They, uh, <laughs> That's because the liberals cannot communicate their plan. I mean, this is the the irony of all ironies. They actually have a pretty substantial climate plan, but they never talk about it. And they had to leave it to Andrew Weaver, the former leader of the BC Greens, to come out and say, "I'm endorsing this plan because I think it's the best plan." It's like it's even better than the Green Party's plan. Um, but they themselves have not. Uh, describe their plan, the multifaceted approach of their plan. They are terrible communicators when it comes to um, boosting their own plan in the public's mind. Interesting. So then why, um, and I'll open this to uh, Jason, I think, because you were watching the focus groups where people, you know, believe the liberals are good on climate, um, yet they're not particularly proud of any, you know, particular initiative, but they have a sentiment. How have the liberals cultivated the sort of a sentiment among these, these voters that they're the best stewards of climate? Well, you know, I think the answer is similar to what we've seen uh, in many of the topics here. People want tangible actions. They want the government to do real things right now. But I think Althea makes a really good point as well. It wasn't so much that Trudeau and the Liberals won the climate change debate. It was just that they were trusted more to actually act on it. When it came to the Conservatives, there was a sense that, frankly, that uh, Mr. O'Toole got ahead of his party, that he has a different position than his party. And would he be able to maintain that position and bring those really meaningful actions that Canadians are looking for? So I think that's what voters are looking for next. They want to see real steps taken. They want to see industry and, and, and private sector being a part of it. They want to see that collaboration. They want to see innovation. They also have great hope. The reality is, is one thing that the pandemic and the development of vaccines so quickly has brought about is an expectation that these big problems can be saved, solved fast and quickly. And that's the pressure that, that's on the, the, the Liberal government. I think Mr. Trudeau has been very articulate, obviously, on climate change, the course of his mandates back to 2015. He's been passionate about it. But people now, and people believe that. People believe that Mr. Trudeau cares. But they mm -hmm. want to see action now. And I think he's got a short runway on that. He's going to have to show meaningful action. He's going to have to show it quickly. Yeah, I wonder what kind of benchmarks he could set, Jamie. Um, you know, if he goes back to the voters or, as Althea said, if he walks in the snow and someone else goes back to the voters with the Liberal Party next uh, election, uh, you know, what metrics should they have established by then? What kind of tangible things um, would they want to leave voters with as they would go to the polls again? Well, I, I don't think there's a consensus on that, uh, Tasha. I think the way the Liberals have to deal with climate is just to get on with it. And it is with the getting on with it and the moving forward it, that it will become more personal, it will become closer to Canadians, and they will then be able to judge whether or not they've got the results they've been expecting. And Tasha, we, when we asked uh, Canadians what would success look like, uh, as a, in the field of climate change. People really didn't know. Uh, they, they're mixed up in all these targets and 2050 and 2030. And they're, so, but they did uh, give two answers. First of all, emissions have to go down. Our emissions continue to go up. So that's simple enough. And second, we have to be seen as a leader in the world. You know, in, in that's one then one place where people mentioned international affairs, if you wish. It's we need to be seen as a leader in climate change. So these are the two metrics that Canadians seem to be watching as far as climate change is concerned. Okay. When they say yeah. we, who's the we? Is it is it government and business? And and if so, uh, or just government? I mean, can business get in on this? Um, thinking of the energy sector uh, and 
innovative businesses, can they look to this demand for concrete rapid action and drive that bus or does government have to drive it and will they just be along for the ride? I think there's a lot of clues uh, for and, and props, if you will, for the energy industry in this research and in the results of the election. Uh, just like there's expectations on the government, there's expectations on industry to make meaningful change now. As Andre said, 2050 is a long ways away. People can't envision that. It's not relatable. So they're looking for action now. They're looking for those incremental steps. Yes, to get us to 2050. So for industry, I think there's some hope in some of this they, because there is a desire for innovation. There is a desire for that cooperation between government and industry. So now it's up to industry to show that they're a part of that solution, much like the, the, the opposition parties are going to be forced into showing that they're a part of solutions. Industry needs to demonstrate the same. And there's, there's an opportunity for them to, to really speak to Canadians directly in working with the government. All right. Um, I think we're going to talk now about the penultimate or the ultimate uh, program that really people really loved in all these focus groups. There was there was big consensus on this across the board. And that, of course, you mentioned earlier, Jamie, I believe it was childcare. Uh, it's a program that's been talked about, I think, probably by every single government for the past, well, 20 years, as long as I've been paying attention to politics anyway. And it's never really come to fruition. And it seems that this pandemic has finally made it so. Um, one of the places that is really resonated in the focus groups was in Ontario, where childcare is extremely costly, especially here in Toronto, where I'm sitting. So uh, for that and other reasons, I think it's a safe bet to say this government will go ahead on this program in a big way. So I want to bring Claire Michaels into the conversation now. Uh, she's an associate principal here in the Navigator Toronto office. And uh, Claire, welcome. Um, what did the focus group specifically say about the expectations that Canadians have on the Liberals' childcare plan. Well, as my colleague said, uh, affordability was one of those key issues in this election. And for Ontarians, uh, there was a strong link between affordability and their ability to access affordable childcare. And as you said, we, we heard that across the board in, in our study. Um, in the words of one Ontario father from the 905, um, he said, in terms of the Liberal platform, I was a fan of the childcare changes, like the $10 a day daycare. I have a newborn. So I'm really looking forward to that coming through just as uh, I'm starting my family and I really trust the Liberals to do that. So you can see why, uh, why a national subsidized childcare program has such wide appeal among these voters and for this government. Um, it fits with their self-professed, uh, the party's self-professed feminist agenda. It fits with uh, the economics of it, of getting more women back into the workforce. And it also addresses the affordability issue as well. So for the Liberals, they have to get it done. Uh, it's mission critical for their voters, and it will be a legacy project for this government. Yeah, and that's something that they obviously would want as well, especially if you know if Justin Trudeau doesn't run again. Um, this would be a signature PC to leave behind. I guess the question um, that I'm wondering about is how uh, this would be measured as well, because you know, Althea, this is the the interjurisdictional roadblock that comes up in so often in government federal programs. Um, they're giving the money to the provinces, but how will they measure success if it's in the province's hands to deliver it? I think the thing we need to remember is that the provinces are signing on to these agreements because they actually want to get this done for their own citizens. Like these are popular programs provincially as well. People don't really care who pays the bill. They just want to get those programs done. And I think we saw that even, you know, just after the election campaign with Doug Ford in Ontario saying like, oh, I'm ready to negotiate. Uh, are you Surprise. ready to talk to me? <laughs> so, um, it, yes, in some ways, like the federal government does not have control over this program, but everybody is incentivized to get it done. And I will say, um, you know, 
the liberals have put forward a plan before. If you'll recall, Ken Dryden, right before Paul Martin was defeated, had signed child care agreements with all the provinces. And the liberals have been talking about this forever since. And the NDP, in some ways, has felt like... Um, they help prevent childcare. Like that has been a criticism within the NDP's own ranks that, you know, by uh, contributing to the fall of Paul Martin's government, they helped usher in a decade of Stephen Harper and no action on this on this front. So I think that the opposition parties will try to support the government as they can. The opposition doesn't actually need to agree to this except for the financial framework. Um, and the liberals intend to have childcare established in the same way that they have the carbon price established, that it will be um, such a feature of the system that no other federal government will be able to dismantle it. That's something that we also heard from Justin Trudeau and the Toronto Star's editorial board. A little plug there for the star. Um, but uh, yeah, so th there you go. You know, So that is something that they intend to have established, functioning. And I think that's one of the things that they will want to ensure um, that they, they have a strong record when they return to the polls. I think it's also important to remember from, from an Ontario perspective, I think all of the provinces, the good news is that more than half of these agreements have been signed um, and the, the outstanding provinces have been quite quite open to it. There's only really been one exception, which is Alberta, and they want the same uh, deal as Quebec. But for Ontario, there's really two considerations when you're looking at an agreement like this. One is, are they going to recognize uh, the substantial investments that have already been made in things like uh, full-day kindergarten, which serves children who are ages four and five years old. And, uh, you know, in other provinces, that's recognized as a form of daycare. So uh, is that going to be recognized in this type of negotiation? The other thing, too, is whether or not it jives with Ontario's own child care program, which is the Ontario Child Care Tax Credit. Uh, very similar to what we saw with the federal conservatives in the election, it would provide up to 75 percent uh, for child care expenses. And it wouldn't just be daycare. It would be a wide range of, of, of options. So just two considerations from, from an Ontario perspective, for sure. Well, from a national perspective, um, does it also give Justin Trudeau the ability to get provincial governments to be cooperative in his uh, minority situation? Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of back and forth with different premiers. We know Premier Legault had a list of demands in this election and went as far as to say, well, the Liberals might be dangerous for those demands. Uh, vote for a different party, which obviously didn't take power. Um, and Doug Ford has often been on the outs with the prime minister, though now he's, you know, as was pointed out, come to the table. So is this kind of a relationship building exercise as well as delivering a policy that people really want? I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> um, I think that the Legault example, the Premier of Quebec, is the best example. Like the, in the summer, the Liberals signed a broadband deal, electric vehicles, buses uh, deal, and then the childcare deal, which was $6 billion with no strings attached over five years. And then François de Gaulle turns around and says, I think you should all vote for a conservative minority government <laughs> led by Aaron O'Toole. I think the provinces are very good at negotiating with the government and, you know, asking for as much as they can with that, with realizing that, you know, this is not going, signing childcare agreements is not going to prevent the provinces from saying, hey, we want you to raise the uh, Canada health transfer, your part to 35%. Like these things are basically, they're a separate they want to ask and ask and ask, and uh, because you give me in one on on one thing doesn't mean I won't ask about something else. 
Right. I Jeez. agree with Ria. I think it's, it, it's, right. it's voter expectations that are going to discipline both parties, uh, Ottawa and the provincial government, to collaborate on childcare. Um, and I think the, the federal government was smart to go the bilateral route. Uh, so to Claire's point, uh, that deal can be tailored to what's already been done on the ground in Nova Scotia versus Alberta versus Ontario. Uh, so I think that will really help uh, people get to the deal. Um, and, uh, and, and for every other issue, it'll be jump ball. And we'll see uh, the usual uh, intergovernmental squabbling. But specifically on childcare, I don't think there's any patience uh, within uh, the voter base uh, for any kind of intergovernmental bun fight uh, on this. I think you saw that as well in, in Western Canada. It's probably why Premier Mo signed on to this prior to the election. And let's be honest, even in Alberta, this is a popular initiative. And and Premier Kenny does need some, some good news out here. So opposing this would seem to be contrary to that. Although one of the things that Mr. Kenny has said is, is that one size can't fit all, as Graham said. And the idea that nine to five daycare, eight to four daycare works for everybody when we have folks on shift work, when we have people that need it outside those traditional hours, it's going to be interesting to how that plays out in those negotiations as Alberta likely comes on. Mm -hmm. And something that the conservatives had had tried to, to sell in their plan that it was more flexible, which ultimately would be left to provinces. But that you raise a good point, Jason, because that leads into uh, businesses' role in this too. Um, we do know that uh, business is very much on side right now with the childcare plan. I'm wondering if that is also because this helps them deal with a shortage of, of workers. Women are have left the labor force, and part of it is is due to the the issue of childcare. So I'd love to see if you, if uh, who wants to weigh in on that in terms of the role that childcare could play also in the economic recovery that uh, we need. Well, Jamie, well, do you want to take that one? Uh, Sorry, Jamie, do you want to take that one? I saw you speak. Just no, I was just going to say you can see the uh, the change of business's attitude. Uh, it started a little bit before the pandemic, but now with the pandemic, business is pretty clear. They they want this. They see this as a as an integral support to the recovery of the economy and the re, and the recovery of all those jobs. So there's a there's a magic moment of a coalition of the willing, if you like, uh, for this proposition. And um, I think it's exactly the right point was made, which is the governments will discipline themselves because it'll be a race to see who could accumulate as many popularity points for getting this done. Tasha. Yes. I, I, I was a few months ago on a webinar, as we all have been over the last year Too and a half. Too many. <laughs> yeah, and, and Goldie Hyder of the Business Council of Canada, very supportive on investments in childcare. And, and obviously, since then, we've had an election, and I don't think that's going to change. I think businesses certainly see the benefits of what this will be able to do to help women, but all parents be able to get into the workforce, be able to stay in the workforce, increase their productivity. And of course, the long-term benefits. We often talk about the short-term, which obviously the, the benefits are great, but in the long-term, I mean, this helps children get a great start in life too. So this is an investment that will reap many rewards for years to come. And I just wanted to add, I think Althea is absolutely right. She alluded to this a while ago. I mean, the people that are speaking about the election, the federal election, uh, are the same people that are going to be voting in provincial elections. So just mm -hmm. to add that, uh, that uh, two cents again, uh, they are going to be putting pressure on provinces that have not signed yet to, to get it done. It goes right into the sort of idea that people want to see government in our case, we we tested federal government, but I would assume it will apply to provincial governments, get things done, things that help tackle societal challenges and at the same time help my daily life 
and childcare is such a great example. So I think there'll be pressure for, for, for the provinces that have been holding out to sign soon. All right, um, we're almost out of time. The hours has flown by, but before we go, I wanna get uh, some of your final thoughts on the biggest takeaway you had from this election campaign, from the research that was done. What really stuck with you in terms of that will define the government's agenda going forward? And Althea, I'll start with you because you were, you were literally in the campaigns, following all the campaigns throughout the 36 days. Yeah, well, actually, I joined after Labor Day to be factually accurate, but I did spend uh, some done. time with the Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau towards the end. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, when you're in those leadership campaigns, you actually uh, in those election campaigns with the leaders, you don't actually talk to that many real people because the people that you meet are basically, um, you know, hardcore supporters. I, I will say a few takeaways from the election. Uh, the election result, I think, once again, proves uh, the wisdom of crowds, which in this case was just so on point. It's a little eerie. Mm. I think people, um, and maybe this is what is really what we're seeing from their research, COVID has taught us that governments can act and pivot and do big things quickly when they want to. And I think that's one of the reasons why the public is less tolerant to, to dilly-dallying and taking times and the excuses that, you know, oh, it takes a long time to take the ship of government around and steer it where you want to go. Because we've seen that when they want to introduce things like CERB, like the wage subsidy, they can pivot super quickly. And so and I think that well. that... Yeah, and well, uh, I don't... Well, that's arguable. Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a judgment call, but definitely do things. Yeah. But I think people are anxious, they're scared, um, and they're looking for uh, direction from the government on things that they care about. And this is an opportunity for the Liberals, this particular prime minister who was very interventionist, uh, to get some, you know, to cement his legacy with big programs in, in the same way that, you know, we have Medicare, maybe we will have uh, childcare and pharmacare and maybe you know, publicly funded long-term care. Uh, so we'll see where they end up going with that. But there is an, an opportunity for Justin Trudeau to really um, make a name for himself in the history books. Okay, Jamie, you got about 20 seconds. Last word to you on this. Biggest let, takeaway. Let, let, let me just finish up. Althea's point, she's exactly right. There is a remarkable opportunity for this prime minister. And that's because the biggest takeaway, the single most important thing that business can learn from this research is that Canadians have fundamentally redefined their relationship with government. It's a new relationship. We have to understand that relationship. And it's one that suits this particular prime minister like a hand fits a glove. All right, well, that will be the last word, uh, but not the last word in this conversation as the new government goes forward with its plans. I want to thank all our panelists from across the country and a special thanks, of course, to Althea Raj of the Toronto Star. We hope the insights that you heard today will help you navigate the new landscape and make the right decisions to thrive, prosper, and succeed. I'm Tasha Carradine on behalf of all our team here. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Garner, Kimberly Draypack, and Matt Barnes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at TractionPolly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.